You're listening to the Prince College Podcast, a ministry of Prince Avenue Baptist Church, where our goal is to lead you to trust and follow Jesus. Well, if you don't know me really well, one of the things that you should know about me is that I absolutely love a good story. Like, I love a good story. I like to watch good stories unfold in movies and TV shows. I like to read good stories in books, and I love to hear a good story told. But here's the deal about me. I don't like to just passively listen to or watch a story unfold. I like to actively try to anticipate where the story is going. I don't know if any of you are like that in the room, but if I'm watching a movie, I'm trying to figure out what's next. And I just got to tell you, it drives my wife insane, okay? Jillian absolutely hates this about me because we'll be sitting on the couch watching a movie, and I'm just like whispering to her the whole time what I think is going to happen next. Hey, I think he's going to die. Hey, I bet she falls in love with him. And I'm just trying to predict the movie the entire time. She's like, can we just watch the thing, right? But here's the deal. The reason that Jillian really hates this and this is just a humble brag right here. She hates it because I'm pretty good at it. Like, I, I mean, if I, just to toot my own horn a little bit, I'm pretty good at just kind of guessing where a story is going. And I think I know the reason why. Because as I, I've read a lot of books, I've watched a lot of movies, and what I've begun to notice is that every story has very similar elements to it. If you're an English major in the room, you might know what I'm talking about, that every good story follows a similar pattern. Think about it, that every good story kind of starts out and things are relatively good. And then something bad happens, disaster strikes, and then something needs to be done to rectify that which was wrong, and you kind of get better and better and better, and then you reach this climactic moment upon which the entire story hangs, and then you just kind of resolve into the end. Every story that you and I love is like that. If you don't believe me, just think about some of the popular movies that we love. This summer, many of our hearts were captivated by Top Gun, right? We love seeing Tom Cruise take the stage. Some of you gentlemen thought that you could rock, rock a mustache just as good as Miles Teller, and you were wrong, okay? We loved that movie, but think about the plot of that movie. I'm not going to spoil it, so if you haven't seen it, don't freak out. Think about the plot of that movie. Tom Cruise starts out. He's working on this top-secret spy plane that goes really fast, and then he crashes it, and he gets fired, and he gives a, gets given a teaching assignment that he doesn't want, and no one wants him there. And then what happens? He has to gain their trust slowly over time. And then they can't really get the mission done, so he needs to join and be a part of the mission with them, and it ends in this really climactic moment, and it's a beautiful ending. It follows the same storyline. Think about, I've talked about this movie before. It's one of my favorite movies of all time. The movie Gladiator, right? Incredible movie. We have this general, General Maximus Decimus Meridius, right? And he's leading his armies of men, and it's incredible. But then, very early on in the movie, the emperor's son takes over and has Maximus' family killed. Wife and son murdered. Disaster strikes. He's sold into slavery. He becomes a gladiator. He begins to work his ways up the rank until one fateful day he comes face to face with that wicked emperor and he removes that mask and he says that line, my name is Maximus Decimus Meridius, father to a dead son, husband to a dead wife, and I will have my vengeance in this life or the next. Incredible. 
Amen, right? And he does get his vengeance in that life, all right? Then things end, right? Think about, it's not just the big blockbuster movies. All right, here's the one that gets me. It's even in our romantic comedies. You see this. Let me tell you, this is the plot line to every single romantic comedy ever made. Okay, here's what happens. You have boy and girl, and they're living their own separate lives, successful in their careers. Things are going well, but they're starting to feel a little lonely. And then what happens? Boy meets girl. Things start to go well. And then what happens? Inevitably, the dude does something stupid and screws the whole thing up, right? Disaster strikes, and then through a series of somewhat comical and romantic events, he has to regain her trust, culminating in this magical display of love, and they fall in love, and they live happily ever after. Every romantic comedy ever made. You don't have to watch another one. You're welcome. Okay? Every story follows this same pattern. Things are good. Disaster strikes. Something must be done to fix it before things can go back to the way they're always meant to be. There is something about a story like that that resonates deeply within the human heart. No matter where you come from. No matter what background you have, a story like that pulls at your heartstrings all across the world. This is true. And the question that I have is why? Why is this the elements? Why are these the elements to every good story? What I would tell you is this. I believe that these are the elements to every good story, that we're attracted to stories like these because in many ways, this is our story. That this is the story of us. It's the story of humanity. It's the story of God's relationship with its creation, with his creation. You see, the Bible tells us that God has placed eternity in the hearts of man. And what that means is this, is that we are all created with a longing for something more, longing for something significant, longing for something eternal. And whenever we see stories like this, it's as if something calls out to it, something deep within us. And we resonate with it because it's our story as well. That's why I had my friends read these really important passages in Genesis 1 through 3. The very first book of the Bible, the very first three chapters in the entire library of Scripture. And I love the book of Genesis. It's one of my all-time favorite books of the Bible. I believe that you can learn almost everything that you need to know about God from that one book alone filled with so much wisdom. And in these first three chapters, we really see the framework that will shape our entire story moving forward. And I want you to get a grasp of it tonight. So what we're going to do with the time that we have remaining is we're going to take a deep look at Genesis 1, 2, and 3. And these three passages that my friends just read a moment ago, we're going to dissect them and we're going to talk about them and we're going to see through this, the same elements of this story that is not just a figment of Hollywood, but is our story. And I want you to get a hold of this because I believe that once you get a firm grasp on this story, this gospel story of old, that it will change everything for you. So what we see in Genesis chapter 1, we're going to start in the very beginning. We didn't read Genesis 1.1. I'm going to read it for you now because it introduces us to the main character who is God. Genesis 1.1 says this, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. 
I love this. From the get-go, Scripture is introducing you to the main character who is this almighty, powerful God. You know, some of our favorite movies, they kind of just zoom in on the main character, and he's kind of puny at first, like he's Peter Parker just kind of before he becomes Spider-Man, or he's Harry Potter in a cupboard under the stairs, or he's Captain America before all the Captain America serum or whatever that's called, right? Not this story. This story starts out with a magnificent God, all-powerful, mighty, and majestic. From the jump, we see this eternal being speaking and bringing forth a universe. I don't want you to miss this. He's altogether different. And here's the sad reality about these three chapters in the book of Genesis. The sad reality is this, is that in the age that we live in, we've turned these three chapters into a debate about scientific discovery and evolutional theory. We turn this into a debate about old earth versus new earth, and I'm just, I just want you to hear me say this really, really clearly tonight. The author of Genesis was not attempting to write about scientific debates of the 21st century. He just wasn't. The author of Genesis was writing to introduce you to a God that is far above anything that you could ever imagine. He wants you to know him. That's the purpose of Genesis 1 through 3. He's writing to introduce you to this magnificent God, and he's also writing to tell you a little something about you, to let you in on your origin story. Because here's what I want you to notice. As you read through Genesis chapter 1, what you will very quickly begin to see is a pattern begins to emerge. That throughout the, the days of creation, this God speaking and things start happening. And there's this pattern that emerges that goes a little bit like this. God says, let there be, and there was. Let there be light, and there was light. Let there be vegetation, and there was vegetation. Let there be, and there was. This pattern through all of creation, God speaks and things move. But notice with me for a moment that that's not at all how God created mankind. That God didn't just say, let there be mankind and there was mankind. That's not what happened. That's not what Emma read for us a moment ago. Instead, God says, let us make man in our image. Now that's, that's different. That kind of disrupts the pattern, so to speak. This is new. This is unlike any other aspect of creation. And we have to ask ourselves, what does this mean, being created in the image of God? This is what theologians refer to as the doctrine of the Imago Dei, which is Latin for image of God. And I just got to tell you that there have been entire libraries of books written on this subject. And we're not going to scratch the surface tonight. We're just not. But what you need to know for our purposes tonight, that being created in the image of God is this, that being created in the image of God does not mean that you look like God physically. Some of you need to chill with that, okay? You're not, get over yourself, humble yourself. You don't look like God. That's not what that means. It means that you were created to embody the glory of God. That you were created to be the physical representation of God's presence here on earth. That you were created to bring him honor and glory. That you were created for a unique relationship with the Almighty. That you 
as a human being, are not just another part of creation, that you are made in the image of God, and that means that your life has worth, has meaning, and it has value, not because of who you are or what you accomplish, but because of whose image is upon you. Some of you just need to hear that tonight, okay? Your life has worth, meaning, and value, not because of anything that you have done, but because of whose image is upon you. We see from the get-go that God has a unique purpose for mankind, and he elaborates on that purpose in Genesis chapter 2. What you need to know about the difference between Genesis 1 and 2 is Genesis 1 is kind of like a 30,000-foot flyover where you're getting all the, like you're seeing things from a a distance of creation. Genesis chapter 2 is like a zoomed-in view. And you get more details. That's what happens in Genesis chapter 2. And in Genesis chapter 2, we see a little bit more about God's purpose for mankind. What we see is that God gives mankind three things. I want you to write these three things down. God gives mankind a job. He gives mankind a command. And he gives man a partner. So God gives man a job, a command, and a partner. The first thing that we see God do is he gives the man a job. In Genesis 2.15, God calls the man to work and keep the garden. That's significant. God is calling mankind to tend to the things that he has made and to bring him glory in the way that he works. And that man is meant to be an ambassador of sorts and to work hard and bring God glory as he does. So the man is given a job. The second thing that the man is given is he's given a command In verses 16 and 17 of chapter 2, God tells the man, hey, you can eat of any tree in the garden except for this one, except for one tree, the knowledge of the good and evil. You can eat of anything else except for this one tree, and if you eat of it, in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. God gives the man a command. And the next thing that God gives is he gives the man a partner. This is really incredible. In Genesis 2, verse 18, this is the first time in all of creation that we see God say that something is not good. As he creates every single day, he says that he sees and that it was very, it was good. And it ends on the sixth day by saying that it was very good. But Genesis 2, 18, God says that something's not good. And the thing that he says that's not good is that mankind is alone. He says man is alone. And it's not good that he's alone. And so God brings all the animals. You Perhaps you know this story. And Adam names all the animals, but none of them are fit for him. Praise God that none of them were fit for him. Because what happens next is God creates woman and brings her to man. And the two become one flesh. They become man and wife, and co-heirs of the promise. They become partners in life. And God tells them, be fruitful and multiply. He gives them a mission together to spread his glory to the ends of the earth. God gives man a partner. And then there's another detail at the very end of chapter 2 that's really significant for us understanding our story. And it's this, it's the one that we all kind of snicker at, that they were naked and unashamed. That's the part that kind of makes us laugh about this story. Like if you've ever seen pictures or paintings of the Garden of Eden, they've got really strategically placed plants to cover up the nakedness. You know what I'm talking about. Like if you grew up in like old school church, you know exactly what I'm talking about, right? The really cheesy paintings. But this is significant. Because this is about far more than just not having clothes on. We like to focus in on the naked part, and we don't focus in on the unashamed part. But here's what you need to know. At the beginning of the story, we see 
the main character, God, create two beings and give them to one another as a gift. And there's absolutely no walls up between the two of them. There's no shame. There's no secrecy. There's no desire to prove oneself. There's no insecurity about how the other feels about them. There's no relational conflict or baggage from their family of origin. There's none of that. There's complete security. There's complete love, complete transparency. There's no shame. There's complete union with God, complete union with one another. There's no barriers and no walls. They have no shame. That sounds pretty incredible. That sounds like paradise. That sounds like something none of us have experienced in our lifetime. So here, at the very beginning of the story, before any conflict has been introduced, before disaster strikes, we see the human ideal. This is going to be behind me on the screen. The human ideal is this, is God's people in God's place, enjoying God's presence and accomplishing God's purpose. That is humanity as it was designed to be. That is the human ideal. But as we look around us today, we see that that is no longer our story, right? Like we don't have to look far to see that that's not the way that we're living. Many of us carry a lot of shame. Many of us carry a lot of pain. Many of us carry a lot of baggage. There is relational conflict. There is strife. There is difficulty in this life. So that begs the question, what happened between then and now? What happened to make the world as it is today? And the answer to that is that just like in every good story, something came in and disrupted the narrative. And we see what that something is in Genesis chapter 3. In Genesis chapter 3, we see a new character introduced, a devious character called the serpent. In later chapters of the Bible, we'll learn that the serpent is actually the great enemy referred to as Satan or the accuser. And this enemy comes in and he begins to disrupt the narrative. He begins to introduce conflict. And he says in Genesis 3 verse 1, speaking to the woman, he said, did God actually say that you shouldn't eat of any tree in the garden? And I, I know that many of you have heard this story before, but I really want you to dive into this with me. Like, I, let's, let's do a deep dive into this for a second, because I want you to pay attention to what he's doing. He says, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Well, from the get-go, he's twisting the words of God, because God never said that. He said, you can eat of any tree in the garden, but not this one. And so he's twisting the words of God, and he's trying to get the woman to doubt God. He's trying to manipulate the words of God to get these people to do what he wants. And so he twists the words of God, but luckily the woman sees through this one, sees through this temptation. She says, no, God didn't say that. He said we can't eat the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We can't even touch it lest we die. God didn't say that they couldn't touch it. She's exaggerating. That's a whole story for a different day. Okay. But then the enemy doubles down and he goes in for the kill. He says, you won't surely die. Here's the temptation. He says, God knows that if you eat of that tree, that you'll be like him. That's the temptation. You'll be like him. You'll know both good and evil. What he's saying to the woman is, you'll be more like God if you eat the fruit of that tree. And I don't want you to miss the irony here. Okay, this is the serpent speaking to mankind 
speaking to the ones that were created in God's image, speaking to the ones who have the most autonomy and the most authority of all created beings. And he's saying to them, you'll be more like God and you'll be more free if you do this. And the irony of that is she's already like God. She's created in his image. She's created in his likeness. She's already free. She has power and authority here on earth to rule and reign alongside the man with God. But speaking to the ones God's made, he's trying to get her to doubt the goodness of God, trying to get the woman to believe that God is holding something back from her. And I want you to hear me really clearly tonight. The enemy does the same thing to you. His tactics have not changed. He still uses the same tricks. His whole motive is to get you to believe that there's a life better out there on your own without God, that you can do better for you than God can, that God is holding back on you. So he instills all kinds of doubts in your mind. Did God really say, did God really say that I'm not allowed to have sex before marriage? Did God really say that I'm meant to love all people, even those who dis- are not kind to me? Did God really say that I'm meant to carry myself as a man or a woman of integrity and not cut corners, even if no one would ever find out and it would be super advantageous to me? Did God really say that? Surely he didn't. Right? These are the thoughts that he plants in our mind. And he does that with Eve and it works. And she eats the fruit of this tree and she gives some to her husband who was with her. Okay, so sidebar there. Those of you who think that Adam was just kind of off doing his own thing and was like innocent and all this. No, Adam is just being a lazy bum and not helping at all. Okay, he's watching his wife get tempted by a serpent and doing nothing. Okay, terrible husband. Like just guys in the room, if you want to be a good husband, don't let your wife talk to a talking snake. Okay, that's really, that's free advice. Okay, Adam is doing a terrible job. The both of them eat of this fruit and boom, just like that, what was once paradise now comes crashing down. Where there was once no shame, now they feel shame. Where they once felt free, they now feel trapped. Where they once were all out in the open, they now feel the need to hide. And so they sew some fig leaves together and attempt to cover their shame, and they run and they hide from the one who made them. In one moment, conflict is introduced. Disaster strikes, and everything keeps crumbling down. But just like in every good story, something needs to be done. Something needs to be done. Someone needs to intervene. And so this is where we see our main character come back in. And God begins to act. He deals first with the serpent. We didn't read this verse a moment ago, but if you underline in your Bible, I would encourage you to underline Genesis 3, verse 15. This is a really, really important verse. God says this to the serpent. that He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman. Between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This is significant. I want you to hold on to that verse. We're going to talk more about it in a minute because this is God beginning to show his hand. This is God saying, hey, there's going to be a man that is born of a woman and the enemy would wound him, but that he will ultimately crush the enemy's head. Spoiler alert, he's talking about Jesus, the Messiah to come. In Genesis chapter 3, we already have a link to the New Testament. 
You need to see that, all right? We'll get there in a minute. But God makes this sweeping promise that the enemy will one day be defeated, and then he begins to deal with humanity. He begins to deal with his creation because something still needs to be done. They still, still have to deal with their shame. See, they've hidden themselves, and they've attempted to cover themselves with fig leaves. I love that the Bible gives us that, like, description there, that it gives us that detail. Because what you need to know about fig leaves is that they're small, they're itchy, and they will wither very quickly. So not great clothing option, right? Like, not a good idea from the jump. But this is what mankind has chosen to try to cover their shame, something that will not, not work at all. It's something that will wither in the end. This is not a very good solution to their problem. It's not very well thought out. So God intervenes. And in Genesis 3, verse 21, we see God make garments of skin and clothe them. Now, if you're not careful, that could be a detail that you very quickly breeze by because it just seems normal. Perhaps you read the story a hundred times. That just seems like a detail that you know. But you need to understand that for that to happen, that means a life had to be taken. You understand that, right? For God to clothe them in garments of skin meant that an animal's life had to be taken. The life of an animal was taken to cover their shame. An innocent life was taken to cover the shame of the guilty so that they could have a covering that would last. And this is, if you'll allow me to be a Bible nerd for a minute, this is really, really important imagery. Because as the rest of the story of God's people unfolds, what you will see is that God's people continue to make mistakes throughout the entirety of the Old Testament. They continue to feel shame and separation from God. And as the story goes on, something needs to be done in order to continually deal with their shame. And so what is set up is what is called the sacrificial system. And the way that sin was covered... It was by taking the life of an innocent animal to cover the sins of the people. That the animal became a sacrifice to cover the sins of the people. This is what the Bible calls atonement. If you're a note taker, write down the word atonement. Because atonement, coming from the Hebrew language, it comes from the Hebrew word which literally means to cover. That's what atonement means. To atone for the sins of people is to cover their shame and to reconcile them into right relationship with God. Atonement is an innocent life being taken to cover the shame of the guilty. This is how the story continues for generations upon generations. God's people sin, and they need that sin atoned for through the sacrifice of another. It's like two steps forward and one step back for the entirety of the Old Testament. Incremental progress always followed by pitfalls and mistakes until one fateful day, born in a manger, is Jesus of Nazareth. I told you that we'd get there eventually, but you will never fully understand the work of Jesus if you do not understand the idea of atonement and the need for the covering of sin. So Jesus comes into the world, and he's God in flesh. He's a man born to a woman. And whenever you see that, that should ping Genesis 3.15 in your mind. This is a man born to a woman. He walks on earth in perfect obedience to God. You can read about his life in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Perfect obedience like no one else ever could. The book of Hebrews says this about him, and Hebrews 4.15 says that he was one who in every respect was tempted just like we are, yet without sin. 
So he was tempted, yet he never succumbed to sin. He walked in perfect obedience to the Father. And here's where we begin to see the climax of our story. That as he walks in perfect obedience to the Father, what his life ultimately culminates in is a sacrificial death. 2 Corinthians 5, 21 says that for our sake, God made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. What that means is that Jesus died in our place. He took our penalty so that we could receive his price. That's what that means. So Jesus lives this perfect life, an innocent one, completely blameless, and he lays down his life to cover the shame of his people. An innocent life was taken to cover the shame of the guilty. That is atonement. That's what happened on the cross of Christ. In this big climactic moment on the the cross, Satan did bruise Jesus' heel. That happened. Jesus suffered very real pain. Jesus died a very real death, and Jesus was buried in a very real tomb. But the story does not end there. Our story does not end in a tomb because three days later, Christ rose from the grave and he walked out of darkness and into light, out of death and into life. He arose victorious, the king of all kings. And in that moment of his resurrection, he rendered the enemy defenseless. He destroyed the enemy once and for all. And the Bible now tells us that Jesus is now seated at the right hand of God, meaning his work here on earth is finished, that he has accomplished all that he needed to accomplish for the atonement of our sins. He paid the ultimate price to set his people free. That's good news. And this is where this all becomes intensely practical for you right here and right now, because this isn't just some story. This is our story, and this is the story that changes everything. It's not a story to just sit back and passively observe. It's a story to actively participate in, and the reason that I wanted to start like this tonight from the jump, from the beginning of the semester, is that my fear for us is that far too many of us approach the story of God just like we do the stories that we watch on the movie screen. That we come to the story of God to be entertained or to feel good for a moment, but we walk away without any real change taking place in our lives. And I need you to understand tonight that this is not just another story. This is the story that changes everything. And I want you to realize that this is your story. There is a God in heaven who wants to use you for something magnificent, to display his glory and his power to the ends of the earth. That's what God wants for you. But if you are going to step into that, you need to first understand the finished work of God of Jesus. Because every single one of us in this room was born just like Adam and Eve, that we were created in the image of God, destined for something great. You are made to know God and to make him known. You are made to enjoy God and lead others to do the same. But just like in the story of Genesis, we all have fallen short of the human ideal. Romans 3.23 says that we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We've all chosen to rebel against God. We're tempted by the enemy just like our ancestors. Now, you may not face a 
talking snake in a garden, but we're all tempted to believe that we would be better off on our own. That somehow, some way, God's holding back on us and that we could do better for ourselves. And the enemy tempts us the same way it tempts them by trying to get you to believe that if you pursue your own version of morality, your own ideas for what to do with your life, your own ideas about sex and sexuality, your own career success and acclaim and, and financial success, if you pursue life apart from God, that in it you will find freedom. That's what the enemy tries to get you to believe. But can we just be honest in the room tonight? Those of you in, the, in a room this size, there's many of us who've pursued many broken things. We can be real about that. I've done it. You've done it. Can we just be honest? None of it leads to freedom. It all leads to more shame. It all leads to more broken. And what do we do? Just like Adam and Eve, we run and we hide. We run and we hide. We hide behind fake smiles whenever inside everything's falling apart. We hide behind Instagram posts that make it look like everything's amazing in life, when in reality, we're just trying to hold things together. We hide behind all of these things. We try to distract ourselves, and all of it is just our version of fig leaves. That's all it is, things to cover up our problem, and it won't last. And I'm here to tell you tonight that every single one of us Everyone in this room, myself included, that we all need God to cover our shame. We need to come out of hiding and to let God clothe us in something else. We need to put down the fig leaves and let him cover us with something lasting. And I want you to hear me tonight that in Christ Jesus, you have been offered that opportunity. You have been offered freedom from that shame. He has atoned for your sin. And if you come to him, if you believe in him, then you can receive grace and mercy beyond compare. You can be forgiven. You can be restored. You can be redeemed. You can be brought back into right relationship with God, just like you were always meant to be. So there you have it. Our introduction. Things were good. Disaster strikes. Things climax on the cross. But as you may have noticed... We're not at the end of the story. We're not there yet. We haven't reached that point in history. The story, our story doesn't end on the cross. And where we now stand, living as college students in 2022, we're living between the climax and the resolution. And scripture tells us that the resolution's coming. And it gives us a picture of it in Revelation 21. It says this, that this is a vision that John has. He says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth, and the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more, and I saw a holy city, a new Jerusalem, coming down from heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, listen to this, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and he will be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be no mourning or crying nor pain, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. That is God's people in God's place enjoying God's presence and accomplishing God's purposes. The ideal will one day be restored. But that begs the question, what do we do now? What do we do now? We're going to talk about this and unpack this over the weeks to come. But what you need to hear me say is this as we come to a close. Is that just like in Genesis chapter 2, God has also given us three things. He's given us a job. He's given us a command. And he's given us a partner.
We see these things in Matthew chapter 28. As Jesus is getting ready to ascend into heaven, he says to his disciples, and by extension, he says to us, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So we are called to go out and tell everyone of this good news. That's our command. We are called to be his ambassadors, his, the physical embodiment of God's glory here on earth. Making disciples of all nations should be our primary occupation. That's our job. And he, we're also told that we don't have to do this job alone. In Genesis chapter 2, we are promised a partner, and God promises a partner again here in Matthew 28, that we don't go alone, that we go with him. That we go alongside our king, that we partner together, we link arms together, and we go alongside our king moving into the world for his glory. So in conclusion, what I want you to hear me say is this, that we are called to go in the name of God, empowered by the presence of God, to proclaim the goodness of God. That is why you exist. And that's what I want for us this year, Prince College. I want us to be people who know the truth of the gospel, and I want to, us to know that this is a story that changes everything. I want us to be captivated by the gospel of Jesus Christ and to move in the world differently, being ambassadors for his glory. 